Hello, and welcome to the 29th episode of Catch Up on Kids Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Barbara Muscat, a clinical social worker and professor about neurodiversity in children. Dr. Muscat has worked in a variety of settings in her 40 years as a social worker, including 20 years at Integra, an agency that specializes in addressing the psychosocial needs of children with learning disabilities, being past director of social work at the Hospital for Sick Children, and being a professor at the Factor Inwintosh Faculty of Social Work, University of Toronto. Her research projects include an examination of hospital experiences of children and youth with autistic spectrum disorders and their families. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. We're very happy to have you here. I think you're just the right person for this conversation. And I guess the first obvious question is, what do we mean by the term neurodiversity? So um, the term neurodiversity developed at the same time that the field of disability started to push back on identity politics, when they felt that most people were considered, who, who had a disability were considered broken or faulty and they started to say, maybe it's not us that's a problem, it's society that's a problem, and maybe that they're, what society needs to do is be more accommodating. So back in the 1990s, a woman in Australia, a sociologist, came up with the term neurodiversity, feeling that people who had differences in how their brain functioned were also seen as broken or not as good as other people, and really it was maybe society that needed to be more accommodating. What's been interesting is this has been taken over by mostly the field of autism, but also other learning issues and neurological issues, and really has been a force for advocacy for this population, that we need to become more accommodating as a society for people who think and whose brains work differently. Do you, do you think that this campaign has been successful? Do you think that people in the mental health and the learning community and the larger public are getting the message? I think a small percentage of people have gotten the message. I think it's floated around within the communities of people who are neurodiverse. I don't think it's really floated out of that as well, because I don't see um, the same sort of accommodations developing that there have been for people with um, with other diversity issues that are more apparent. Um, because neurodiversity is often invisible, you, you don't see the diversity on the person unless they behave in a certain way or struggle in a certain way. And I think the public still doesn't quite get it. And I think that they don't believe in the struggles that these people are having, and they're still kind of a blaming kind of approach. But it's been a very good, useful um, tool for advocacy to try to get more accommodating environments and for people who are trying to come up with an identity that fits for them if they struggle with one of these neurodiversity categories. And what kinds of accommodations are we talking about? Are you talking about accommodations in, in school for young children? Well, it starts for young children, and then it goes through the years into post-secondary education and in the workforce. Usually, neurodiversity is um, identified in a young child. They'll struggle with reading. They'll struggle with sitting still. They'll struggle socially. They'll struggle behaviorally. 
And there's usually a process of identification and diagnosis. And early on, the, the focus of work is to try to help remediate some of the issues. So while in the beginning, there is a sense of there's some work that can be done to help fix these problems, at a certain point, what's needed is accommodations rather than fixing. So let's say someone is struggling with reading. You can learn to read, but reading is still going to be a struggle. So an accommodation might be a book on tape, which many people use anyway. (laughs) My favorite thing. Absolutely. So it's already there. But, you know, just think how much easier life would be for someone who struggles with reading to have their books on tape. Or um, for kids with autism, they often have high sensory needs. So knowing that noise or too much touch or too much commotion can be difficult for them, then I think the accommodation is to, to either warn the child that it's going to be noisy, try to keep the noise down, very simple accommodations that really you just need awareness of what the child needs in order to to cope. And over time, what you hope is if you truly had an an accepting neurodiverse world, you would find that, that these would be easily accommodated for in the workforce, but it would be the individual who'd have to ask for them, not their parents or, or, you know, it wouldn't be in their teaching record or whatever. And just to be clear, when we're talking about children and adults with neurodiversity, we're not talking about a sickness, a brain injury, a developmental delay. We're just talking about brains that function a little bit differently than what we call the norm. Well, here's the, the complication. Once upon a time, for something like autism, autism was equated with developmental delays. But what we now know is is your cognitive ability, your intellectual ability intersects with autism. So you can have autism and have an intellectual disability, or you can have autism and be brilliant. So it's not one of the same. It's the features of autism, like idiosyncratic interests, sensory issues, needing things to be in a certain order, um, some social difficulties. Those are the pieces that are part of the neurodiversity piece. Same with attention deficit disorder. You can have an intellectual disability and attention deficit disorder, but we're talking about the attention deficit disorder, not the intellectual disability. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's very clear. Thank you. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the social and emotional challenges that I'm assuming neurodiverse children have to grapple with. Yeah, on account of um, of their the way their brain functions, things can be frustrating for them. So when when you're in a situation that's overstimulating, let's say you may end up having a kind of a meltdown. So you'll you'll see a lot of behavioral issues coming out of frustration, being asked to do what's very hard repeatedly. If people don't understand you, it can be very difficult and frustrating to cope, especially as a young child. So you'll see a lot of behavioral issues. You'll see over time some depression because if people don't understand you and they don't accommodate, there could be depression. There's often a lot of anxiety, not knowing what to expect, what's going to come next. You can have loneliness because you might behave a little differently than other kids. So you might be lonely, isolated, socially isolated. 
And sometimes if you've got autism, you might have some unique interests that are different from other kids, which will separate you from others. So there's often, there can be, so it's interesting, you can have issues that come from having a neurodiverse condition, and you can also have a neurodiverse condition and anxiety and depression. So you can have them concurrently or as a result of your neurodiversity. And I'm assuming it's not that simple to separate those uh, and find out what the priorities are or what the root cause is. What would parents need to do if they suspected that their child was a member of the neurodiverse population or was just struggling? Yeah. The first thing is, it's just to observe for a little bit. Observe, take some notes, see what you're seeing, then talk to your family doctor or a pediatrician if possible. And then if there is concern and if the the doctor or a teacher or someone concurs, then it's right to um, getting an assessment. And assessments can be carried out by pediatricians, psychologists, other doctors, psychiatrists if need be, because then you'll get a, a roadmap to what the kid needs. Uh, an assessment will tell you what, what the issues are. And will actually, a good assessment will actually say what accommodations are needed or what intervention is needed. And then you have a roadmap for what's ahead. I have so many questions in my head just at this particular point, but are children being assessed adequately and earlier enough to to get the kind of support and the kind of understanding of the issues? It's so dependent. It's dependent on locality what kind of resources are nearby. There are certain communities that lack, you know, sufficient people with expertise to do assessments. It depends on the parent's view and the parent's feelings and the parent's concerns about the child. How parents view this will have a huge impact on what they do because some parents find this is too difficult, too painful, and they go into a bit of denial and they wait and they wait and the child suffers for a while. Some parents feel that it's the kid's fault because they don't see anything that's actively going on. So it must be the kid is doing this on purpose and that can be problematic. So there's all of those barriers. There are huge wait lists. We're short of pediatricians. We're short of family doctors right now. So it depends on access. And then it depends if you have a school that can pick up on some of these issues. If the school picks up on it, you can get on a wait list at school. But wait lists for assessments at schools are often several years long. Uh, And it, it doesn't mean that nothing could be done while you wait. But generally, nothing is done until there's a formal diagnosis. And I'm assuming that the earlier these problems are diagnosed and the strategies uh, lined up, the easier and more successful the remediation programs for these children would be. Yeah. The irony is that the kids who are usually picked up earlier are those with the most severe issues, the most apparent severe issues. They enter some very intense behavioral programs. What's interesting is the more coping skills you have, the later you're going to be picked up. So there are many people with neurodiverse issues who aren't picked up until adulthood because they've managed to get by because they figured out how to cope. They have other compensating skills. They have a supportive family. It's not uncommon for people to be diagnosed with neurodiverse issues into adulthood because they've been able to cope better. And do you think uh, in your experience, is that a relief for adults or is that something that they've been dreading to hear? 
<laughs> again, it really depends on their mindset. But for most people, finding out why their life has been a certain way, has it, it comes with relief. What to do with it at that point is a bit of a problem because, again, we aren't a, a society filled with accommodations. So if you're an adult and you're diagnosed, it's a question of what you need. Often if you've gotten there, you've coped. <laughs> right. But so right. you're, it, you know, are you going to go to a social skills group when you're an adult? Are you going to, are you just going to find that um, finding out why you are the way you are can just help you in figuring out, you know, who you are and help you with your identity? So I guess, I guess it can be helpful in that way. Yeah. Right. right. And often those, those adults have kids who are struggling with similar issues and they go to get an assessment because their kids were assessed. So it's I've had that experience many times. Yes. That they, that when, when they're said and done with the assessment, the assessor looks at the mother or the father and says, "Um, (laughs) your child comes by this very naturally. Yeah. Well, there is a known genetic component and not every child of a person who has the gene, you know, will will develop the the, um, condition. We don't know how it, you know, we think maybe there's something that turns on and off the gene in utero, but it's very common. There is a gene for autism and you can see how it plays out in families. Right. Well, what would you say to parents who are looking for advice about how to support their child who who has some neurodiverse issue. What's the best way parents can help children other than taking them to the doctor and having them assessed? The first thing is, is for parents to think about what it might mean to them that they're raising a child who's got a diverse, some some form of diversity. It's important to get one's head around, you know, it's 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 common for parents to feel let down, sad, depressed, mourn the loss of a perfect child. So some of that you have to get through some of that. And then you have to raise the child in the same way with the same kind of good rules that you would with anybody else in your family. I think that sometimes when you do too much for the child or don't allow them to participate in household chores and expectations, they're problems. So if you raise a child, just like you're raising all the other child, and just knowing who the child is and trying to understand why they do the things they do will make them feel better because you as a parent will accommodate for some of those things. And, you know, being able to predict that if you're going to go to a noisy situation, you might need a a place for the child to to be in a quiet room. You might need to prepare kids for change ahead of time. You want to try to set them up in activities that relate to their interests. You, But you want to try to have the same set of expectations, but accommodated that you would for other children. Do you think there's a tendency of some parents to overcompensate for their children's challenges? Well, it's very interesting. I think it's a real dilemma for parents when when you have a child who's struggling, sometimes you really want things to to be as smooth as possible. So some parents, out of really their best intentions, will sometimes overdo for these kids. Sometimes will do their homework, you know, do a lot of things for them. And then the child doesn't know what they're capable of doing, what they're not capable of doing. And you can develop a kind of learned helplessness where the child learns, I can only do this with my parents' help 
that's going to be a problem as they get older. But parents really, there's no roadmaps for these parents. It's very hard to know what way to go. Do I let them struggle and fail? Or do I try to build as much success as possible? And there, I think there aren't enough mental health professionals who will spend time with parents throughout the course of the child's lifespan to help them check in at different points. Because I think it would be ideal to have a check-in person in, in infancy, in toddlerhood, in school age, high school, and then beyond, just like kind of like a dental checkup, you know, go in and yes. check up and then be able to talk through some of these things. Well, I'm sure the challenges are different, like with all children, they're different at different stages. I mean, I often say the most difficult part of being a parent is the job description changes every time you turn around. You just sort of get used to what your expectations are and get used to the job. And suddenly the job is is a whole new job. And I think for for some of the kids who struggle, we don't really know a lot about outcomes. We know that if you're extraordinarily gifted and talented and you have a neurodiverse aspect of yourself, you can still be enormously successful. I like to talk about a school in the States had a coloring book of famous people with learning disabilities, and they had three gold medal decathletes who all had reading disabilities. So, you know, if you can put your energy into an area of strength and you really work really hard at it, you can be extraordinarily successful. There are famous people, like I know that um. Elon Musk has talked about having Asperger's syndrome, so he, which is his word for high-functioning autism. You can be exceptionally talented, but then there's a group of individuals that we don't know what the outcomes are. And I think for parents, it's hard to know whether the child is going to be able to, to live on their own, manage a household and a job, and be able to do all the things that an adult can do. And we don't have roadmaps for that. We just... Some kids succeed and some kids struggle more. And we don't have enough longitudinal work to know how to how to steer the pathway. Well, and I think also from what you're saying, we don't know the cause of it. I and mean, it may, may be the result of stigma or the result of just a failure of succeeding that causes then the secondary issues that are, you know, that you're talking about. Yeah. Sometimes there have been some wonderful programs where they take a look at what kids with neurodiverse issues can do and try to match them to specific jobs that need that requirement. So there are some kids who have extremely strong visual scanning skills, and they can look at x-rays and pick out like details and x-rays that other people couldn't. There was a big program in the States for a while with one of the big, I think it was a big pharmacy company in their shipping and receiving department, they had about a third of their employees were were those with neurodiverse issues because they were very able to sort, to stack, to move things around. And they were happy to be there and happy to be part of the company. And they were some of the strongest workers. So sometimes when you have programs and adaptations out there, it certainly helps with success. But we don't have enough of those programs right now. That makes sense. So I guess my next question really is, where do you think we need to go? Knowing what we know, what what where do we need to go to help these children live their best lives and their most fulfilling lives? Well, first of all, we're coming out of a, a particularly difficult time coming out of the pandemic, where you know, all kids were kind of locked in and these kids were already locked in 
in many ways. Many of them spend a lot of time on their computers, and it's really hard to get them now off and out and back into the world. So that's an extra barrier right there. I think that if people understood, I think there was just an issue in Toronto at a, at a big um, country club where someone's behavior was misinterpreted and they were arrested, but it was really autism and they were like scared in a locker room or something like that. So we still have a ways to go with the general public recognizing what's out there and understanding and not being that so judgmental. I think we could help in schools. It's interesting. There used to be more congregated classes for kids with differences, and it was felt that it was better to mainstream these kids. Well, in a way, it is. But in a way, what you're doing is you're not giving them an opportunity to meet other kids like them, which is where they often get their social connections. We often all seem to do better when we're with people who are similar to us. And over the years, I found that many neurodiverse individuals find their community within the neurodiverse community. They form relationships, they partner up because you understand each other. You understand what, you know, how to negotiate with each other. And in a way, by mainstreaming kids in school, you've taken away that opportunity to find others like them. And I guess it's also very challenging for teachers to be able to meet the needs of 27 or eight or nine children who are diverse in all kinds of ways. Yeah, yeah. And I, I used to think that, you know, when they used to say, well, how will a student learn social skills if they're not in a regular classroom? Well, if they've struggled to learn social skills all along, they're probably going to still struggle in a regular classroom. I mean, I think what you have to learn to do is be the best version of yourself that you can be. One other point that I wanted to make is that university students with neurodiverse issues often talk about having to make a decision somewhere along in their lives, whether they want to try to masquerade as neurotypical. Do they want to have to put on an act to behave like other people in the world? Or do they want to just be who they are and be more comfortable? Most seem to come up with a a compromise of saying there are certain places where I need to act like everybody else, so I need to masquerade. But in my life, in my real life, in my friendships, in my day-to-day life, I need to be able to be me. So how are you going to be able to discover the you if you're always being asked to masquerade? And that's kind of what we're asking when we teach social skills to, to kids who are neurodiverse, to behave like everybody else or to to take on the traits of eye contact or or things like that which don't come naturally to them. So it's a real dilemma. You know, we don't we don't say to people with other kind of disabling conditions that you have to be able to if you, if you're visually impaired, we don't say you have to be able to see. We say we have to be able to provide you with opportunities to get around the world and to be part of society being who you are. But for neurodiverse individuals, it's like you need to learn how to behave like the rest of us so you can fit in. And that's a real stressor. And I don't think we've grasped how to do that well for this population. Well, I guess there was a time, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but that was a huge issue in the deaf community about whether you would force people to learn to speak and not to do sign language. And that was a real issue for them because they they didn't like the way they speak. It wasn't natural for them. And 
huge percentage said, no, we, you know, sign language is our language. And that's how we would like to communicate. So it's interesting, I guess, that on the one hand, we're so much more aware of the range of differences among human beings and among children. And yet we seem to be less and less accommodating in in our kind of expectations of people. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, there's a delightful club that was developed at the University of Toronto, which was SASA, I think it's called. Uh, it's It's a Friday afternoon meet and greet where kids who are on the spectrum, who are students at the U of T can come and just be. If you want to play board games, you play board games. If you want to bring your device, you bring your device. If you want to talk to somebody, you talk to somebody. But it's a place to come and be together. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity. There are people there to supervise, but you can just be yourself. I think we need more opportunities for that, to come and be yourself and find others who might have similar interests and connect. And that's that's how we we all meet people and join clubs and that sort of thing. Well, wouldn't that be lovely if that could start taking place at the preschool level where children could develop a kind of empathy for a broader range of personalities and behaviors and, and ways of being in the world? Yeah. Yeah. There used to be some of those, but I don't know if they still exist, some integrated nursery schools. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, I'm going to say thank you so much for this conversation. I think you've packed a lot of information for us, and uh, I think this is a topic that is not well understood. So I'm very grateful for our conversation today. Thank you, Janet. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. I think the big takeaway for me in this conversation with Dr. Muscat was that she's approaching neurodiversity in the same way she's approaching diversity in a whole lot of other realms. And I think that gives us a lot to think about. That's it for this episode. I'm Janet Morrison. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.